Well, this morning, we are continuing in our study through the, the, the book of Second Peter. Um, the chapter is chapter 3. The passage is verses 1 to 7. In chapter 2, which was, of course, leading up to chapter 3, we saw that Peter spent a great deal of time reminding us of something. He reminded us of the reality, the judgment, and also a description of false teachers. That's the big theme of chapter 2. That is what, that's what's been on his mind, and that's what he's been focusing on in chapter 2, leading right up to the very chapter that we're looking at today. Whereas in chapter 3, well, what we see here is that Peter's focus, it shifts from the subject of false teachers in the present to now the return of Jesus in the future. Now, as one would expect, there is a relevant connection between these two subject matters. In other words, it's not like Peter is just going from topic to topic, just selecting random subjects in an unrelated manner just to kind of fill in you know, a bit of paper space. You know, that's not what Peter is doing. But instead, chapter three, in chapter 3, we see here that Peter is dealing with one of the, the doctrines, one of the, the teachings that false teachers were seeking to undermine and trying to deny at that time, and that was the doctrine or the teaching of the second coming of Christ. Now, in case you're wondering, this doctrine of the second coming of Christ, it falls under a broader you know, category of Christian doctrine that's known as eschatology. Okay? Don't get scared off if that word is unfamiliar to you. All eschatology really means is that it's simply the study of last things. It's a study of end times things that the Bible teaches that are going to take place at some point in the future. That is what eschatology is. And so when we talk about eschatology, wow, big theological term, fancy term. What is it talking about? It's talking about what the Bible teaches about what's going to take place at a future time. And without a doubt, the most significant future event, which is still to come, is not lunch. No, the most significant future event to come is the second coming of Jesus Christ. The time where Jesus will return physically and literally to earth to judge his enemies, to establish his kingdom for his people, where he will reign as king forevermore. That is the second coming of Christ. Now, in today's study and through our study of Second Peter, we are not going to be covering the subject of eschatology in, a, in an exhaustive kind of way. We're not going to cover every single aspect of it. However, if these studies over the next couple of weeks, if they spur in you uh, an appetite or a, a thirst or let's just say a curiosity for wanting to know more about what the Bible teaches about end times or last things, well, the good news is that we do have a nine-part teaching series on our church website. It is called Things to come. That is the subject, nine parts. And then straight after that series, we, there is a, a three studies in the book of um, Mark chapter 13. Three expository studies, again, where we're pulling out based upon the, you know, following on from the nine-part series of eschatology. It's, it's then pulling apart um, three individual studies of chapter 13. And what this does is it really helps us to better understand what God's Word teaches on the subject of future things. But in the meantime, today we, we're just, again, in this chapter, we're just focusing really in the, you know, the, 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 the focus is going to be more around the second coming of Christ. And in the meantime, we're going to take three studies, three studies to get through chapter three. Three studies to get through chapter 
3. Today, in verses 1 to 7, we're going to be taking a look at the certainty of Christ's return. That's today's passage. Next week, verses 8 to 10, we'll be looking specifically at the timing of Christ's return. So the certainty of Christ's return, the timing of Christ's return, and then the third study in chapter 3 is going to be verses 11 to 18, and there we are going to see the response to Christ's return. So that's where we're kind of going with it. Chapter 3, today, the certainty of Christ's return. Next week, the timing of Christ's return. The week after that, the response to Christ's return. Now, by way of an outline for today's study, this is verses 1 to 7 on the subject of the certainty of Christ's return. We can divide today's study into three parts. No surprises there. Firstly, we're going to see in verses 1 and 2 the, the return of Christ foretold. That's in verses 1 and 2. Secondly, in verses 3 and 4, we will see the return of Christ challenged. And finally, in verses 5 to 7, we will see the return of Christ expected. So that's what we're focusing on. That's a broad outline for the passage of study that we're looking at today, verses 1 to 7. The return of Christ foretold, challenged, expected. And so let's now be, give our attention now, begin by giving our attention to verses 1 and 2, and this is where we see Peter begin by talking about the return of Christ foretold. So please give your attention to your Bibles where Peter begins there in verse 1. He says, Beloved, I now write to you the second epistle in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of uh, the apostles of the Lord and Saviour. And so what do we see taking place in these first two verses here? Well, <clears throat> in these opening verses of chapter 3, what we see here, it marks a transition in Peter's line of thinking where he shifts from describing false teachers, what we saw right up to the end of chapter 2 last week, to now reasoning with believers concerning the doctrine of the second coming of Christ. This is a transition in his thinking, and it's still related, as I mentioned. Now, <clears throat> we see this in the way that he begins in verse 1. He specifically is addressing now believers. He, he addresses them there as beloved, talking about false teachers to now believers. Now, by saying beloved, what is it telling us about Peter? Well, it's demonstrating Peter's pastoral heart. It's demonstrating his deep concern for the spiritual well-being of fellow believers, and that is in stark contrast to the characteristics of false teachers that he has just talked about. The false teachers are there to fleece the flock of God. The, the false teachers are there to dupe the flock of God, to deceive them, to get them off track, whereas here we see something different in the life of Peter. Beloved, he said, someone who is close to him, someone who has a deep care and concern for Notice also there in verse 1 that Peter makes mention of this being his second letter to those who he was originally writing to. What is the, what is the first letter then? Well, there's a lot of dispute among that. You can read chapters and chapters of, chapters of theologians just trying to, trying to come to, to, to uh, an understanding or trying to find out, well, what was the first letter? Well, I, you know what? I think the first letter is probably pretty clear. You know? I don't think I need to spend a whole year and do a doctorate at all to try to figure this out. He's referring to the letter that he's just written previously of 1 Peter. Now we're here in, in 2 Peter. But notice in verse 1 the reason for why Peter is about to focus on the subject of Christ's second coming. The reason that he wants to do this, he says there in verse 1, 
is so that he can stir up their thinking, stimulate their thinking. He wants to remind them of what they have been previously taught. And he wants to do so as a way of counteracting these new and false ideas that have been introduced to them. When there is something new and false that is brought into the church, you need to remind believers of what the truth really is. Remind them, stir up what they already know to be true, and so it is with what it is that Peter is doing here in verses 1 and 2. Now notice in verse 2, Peter wants to do this in two kind of ways. He wants to take two channels in where he wants our thinking to be directed. He wants to stir up our thinking, stimulate our thinking, remind our thinking of what we know to be true concerning Christ's second coming. And there's two channels he wants us to take here to to, to direct our thinking. Notice firstly that Peter wants to direct our thoughts to the teaching of the Old Testament prophets. That's the first way that he wants to direct our thinking, the teaching of the Old Testament prophets. That's what he means there in verse 2, where he says that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets. He wants us to think about what the Bible talks about in the Old Testament concerning the second coming of Christ. Now, what's interesting is that the Old Testament, it's actually full of messianic promises, messianic predictions, promises that talk about Jesus, the coming of Jesus, the Messiah. Messiah meaning anointed or, or chosen one. So many passages in the Old Testament pointing forward to say, this is what to expect when Jesus comes. I mean, starting right from the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, God promises that you know, the coming Messiah would, would crush the serpent's head. And so you see that right in the book of Genesis, and then you go right through into the book of Malachi. Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4 and verse 2, it talks of Jesus being the son of righteousness who would arise and, and everything in between, Genesis and, and, um, and, uh, and, and Malachi, you have these different predictions, the, the, these different places in where the coming of Christ, the coming of Jesus is foretold. In fact, there are 300, at least 333 distinct promises in the Old Testament that talk about the coming of Jesus, 300, at least 333. Now, <clears throat> of those 333 instances in the Old Testament, there are just over 100 of those, so about, around about a third of those prophecies, they were fulfilled at Christ's first coming. When Jesus was born in the manger, born in Bethlehem, right through until his death, resurrection, ascension. At least a third of them were fulfilled then. For instance, Isaiah foretold that Jesus would be born of a virgin. Isaiah 7 Verse 14, Micah foretold that Bethlehem would be the birthplace of Jesus. It's Micah 5.2. Isaiah foretold that Jesus would be a descendant of Jesse, King David's father, and that he would be uniquely anointed with the Spirit of God. That's in Isaiah 11, verses 1 to 5. The prophet Zechariah foretold that Jesus would enter Jerusalem riding on the colt of a donkey. Zechariah 9.9. Psalm 41 verse 9 predicted that Jesus would be betrayed by a very close friend whom he would share a meal with, foretelling of Judas. Zechariah foretold that Jesus would be stricken, his sheep would be scattered, a reference to his disciples abandoning him, forsaking him in the Garden of Gethsemane at that time, Zechariah 13, 7. 
Zechariah also foretold the exact price that Judas, the betrayer, would betray him for, 30 pieces of silver. It's in Zechariah 11, verses 12 to 13. Isaiah foretold many details of Jesus' crucifixion. You just have to read through Isaiah chapters uh, 52 and and 53, many details poetically, graphically described. Psalm 22, David foretold of the the many additional details of what tortures that that, uh, Jesus would have to endure leading up to and at his crucifixion. However, in Psalm 34 verse 20, David foretold that none of Jesus' bones would be broken, not a single one. And in Psalm 16 verse 10, David even alludes to the resurrection of Jesus. Again, the, the list could go on, but I think it's enough to kind of prove the point. And the, prove, the, the, the point is simply, simply this. What the Old Testament prophets foretold about Christ's first coming, many, many hundreds of years before it actually took place, well, it all happened literally, it all happened precisely, It all happened physically in the way in which the Old Testament prophets wrote about. And as we know, what the Old Old Testament prophets, what they did not distinguish is that the Old Testament prophets did not distinguish between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. They didn't distinguish between the two. They just talked of a Messiah, talked of Jesus, talked of a promised one who was coming. That was it. They didn't see the two comings. The Old Testament prophets simply foretold that Jesus would be both a suffering servant and that they also foretold him as being a reigning king. Now, in the minds of many of us, it seems like somewhat of a a contradiction that is there. What do you mean? How can someone be a, a suffering servant and a reigning king at the same time? They're both talking about the same person and they were both at a future time. Now, initially, that sounds like a contradiction. That is, if it wasn't for the first and the second comings of Jesus. Jesus came the first time as the suffering servant. He will come the second time as the reigning king. And so it stands to reason that if one third of the Old Testament prophecies that relate to Jesus' coming as, as, the, um, as the suffering servant, if one third of those were fulfilled precisely and literally then we can expect the remaining two-thirds of Old Testament prophecies, talking about Jesus' second coming, where he'll he'll come as the reigning king, we can expect those to be precisely, physically, literally fulfilled in the same way as it was for the first coming. In other words, if we need any reassurance that Jesus will one day return to earth and to do so a second time, All we need to do is to consider the predictions, the prophecies, what was foretold in the Old Testament concerning Jesus' first coming. And when we consider that, it gives us reassurance that, hey, this is a sure thing. This has to happen in the way that the prophets had foretold. Zechariah chapter 14, verses 4 to 9. That is just one. One of the Old Testament prophecies that graphically describes the, the second coming of Jesus to earth. It speaks of Jesus being physically present here on the earth as he rules and as he reigns. And so I'll just direct your attention just to that one, to Zechariah chapter 14, beginning in verse 4. It says, and in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, very literal, 
which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two, from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north, the other half towards the south. Verse 5 says, Then you shall flee through the mountain valley, for the mountain valley shall reach to um, Azel. Yes, you shall flee. As you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah, thus the Lord my God will come and all the saints with you. Then it says in verse 6, It shall come to pass in that day that there will be no light. The lights will diminish. It shall be one day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at an evening time it shall happen that it will be light. Then in verse 8 it says, And in that day it shall be that the living waters shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them towards the eastern sea, half of them towards the western sea. In both summer and winter it shall occur, and the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day it shall be. The Lord is one, and his name is one. Now you read something like that, and you say, you know what, this, this is not describing the first coming of Christ. Everyone expected this in the first coming of Christ. That is why even after Jesus had instructed them for 40 days, following his ascension, uh, following his resurrection, instructed them for 40 days concerning what had happened and what must happen in the future, even still in, in Acts chapter 1, his, his disciples still ask him the question. They say, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They were still thinking to themselves, we are still expecting the reigning king. When is that going to happen? They were pointing back in their thinking, no doubt, to, to chapters like Zechariah chapter 14, where it says that he will have his feet firmly physically in Jerusalem, that he will be reigning as king, that his saints will come with him and he will reign as king forevermore. That's what it is that they had in their thinking. That's because they, they saw both the first and second comings together. However, we know the first coming, the suffering servant, the future second coming, we see these prophecies relating to passages such as Zechariah chapter 14. You can't go through the passages in the Old Testament, the two-thirds of passages that talk about the coming Messiah and think and try to cram them in somehow to the first coming of Christ. You just can't do that. But what an awesome picture we do have when we look at passages such as, you know, Zechariah chapter 14. The literal return of Jesus to earth with all the saints, which by the way, in case you're wondering, you might be thinking in your mind, well, that's Old Testament. What does it mean in Old Testament? Well, we're going to see shortly in the New Testament, it talks about the saints as well. It's talking about us as believers. A literal return of Jesus to earth with all the saints, believers who have gone before, where Jesus will rule as king over all of the earth. This, my friends, is the second coming of Christ. This is not someone being born in a, a humble manger. But as we're going to see, this is a king coming back victoriously, triumphantly, to judge his enemies, to establish his kingdom with his saints. <clears throat> and so back to our passage in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 2. This is the first place. When Peter wants to direct our thinking, when he wants to stimulate our thinking, when he wants to direct our thinking concerning the second coming of Christ, the first place that he's asked us to, to, to direct our thoughts is to the, the, uh, the, what was written by the Old Testament prophets. The Old Testament prophets spoke about it. But in addition to the Old Testament prophets, do you notice there's a second place that Peter wants to direct our, our thinking? He wants to direct our thinking to the teaching of the New Testament apostles. So not only the Old Testament prophets, but the New Testament apostles. If you notice in your Bibles, that's what he means when he says that you may be mindful of, then he goes, the commandment of us, the apostles 
of the Lord and Savior. Now get this. 23 out of the 27 books of the New Testament, 23 out of the 27, they explicitly refer to the second coming of Jesus. Four books which don't explicitly refer to it, well, there are four, out of those four books, there are two books that, that do allude to it. Galatians and Second John allude to the second coming of Jesus, which leaves us with just two books in the Bible which don't either, uh, uh, two books in the New Testament that don't either uh, explicitly state the second coming of Christ or, or allude to it. And those two books are the book of Philemon and the book of Third John, perhaps the two, two of the shortest books in the, in, the, in the New Testament. The only two, every other book in the Bible, every other book in the New Testament, sorry, mentions something about the second coming of Jesus. Or taking a slightly different approach, <clears throat> out of the 260 chapters in the New Testament, there are about 300 instances where the apostles refer to in some way about the second coming of Jesus. 260 chapters in the New Testament, 300 instances where they referred to Christ's second coming. In other words, this is not some fringe doctrine. This is not just some kind of thing that we're kind of trying to, to milk and, and turn into something. This is something that was very much on the hearts and the minds of the New Testament writers. For instance, Jesus himself, he spoke about his, his second coming often. In fact, he and, and dedicated entire chapters to it. You think of cross-reference in your mind, like you know, Matthew 24 and 25, Mark 13. Think in your minds and th- think of the different chap- whole, whole sections where he's talking about his second coming. For instance, Jesus himself in, in Matthew 16, verse 27, this is what he said. He said, For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each one according to his work. Now, he was already on earth. He was already present when he said this, but he's talking about coming again, another time that he's going to be coming. Matthew 25, verses 31 to 32, he says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as the shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. But in addition to Jesus, the Apostle Paul, we see, talk regularly about the second coming of Jesus. For instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, it's not even really explicitly talking about that. He's talking about something else. He's talking about how one would build within the church, you know, and, and how they, what foundation they would build upon when, um, when seeking to advance the kingdom of God. But even in that, you can see the way that, that the second coming of Christ is so prevalent in his thinking. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, he says, Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness, reveal the counsels of the heart, then each one's praise will come from God. What did he say? Until the Lord comes. It was something that was always on the apostles' mind. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 12 to 13, And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all just as we do to you that, you, that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father, what did he say? At the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, with who? With all the saints. Are we starting to get the picture here? That these prophecies of the Old Testament, when it talks about Zechariah and talking Christ coming physically to earth again, he will be with the saints. And it's the same thing that the apostles are resounding and communicating right throughout the New Testament as well. 
And then I'll just reference Revelation chapter 19, and this is the Apostle John now, describing the second coming of Jesus in a very graphic and somewhat of even a poetical kind of manner as well. But he says, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. In the righteousness he judges, and he makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, his head were many crowns, he had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. And then it goes on to say in verse 15, Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it it should strike the nations, that he himself will rule them with an iron rod, he himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of a mighty God, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, and this is what it says, King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, friends, that just looks a, a slightly different picture in my thinking to the little babe in the manger. You know, I'm just not the you know, sharpest tool in the shed, but when I, when I see the, the coming of Jesus and the manger and, and the animals around him and bring some gifts to him, that's the first coming. The second coming is that of a, of a triumphant king, lord, ruler, armies of heaven, cleansed by the blood of the lamb, clothed in white linen, coming to what? To make war on his enemies and to establish his kingdom. And so you have it there in the New Testament. From Matthew right through to Revelation, the return of Jesus is talked about and proclaimed and articulated and communicated time and time again. And what is the point? The point is that this is exactly what Peter wants to remind us of today. This is what he's wanting to draw our attention to. While false teachers were downplaying and trying to outright deny the doctrine of the, the second coming of Christ, what does Peter do? He directs our thoughts to the testimony of Scripture, the repeated testimony of the Old Testament prophets. That's what he gets us to think about first. And secondly, he wants us to think about the repeated testimony of the New Testament apostles. Peter wants believers to know that the second coming of Christ, it is a, a rock-solid doctrine that we as believers can all have super confidence, complete confidence in. Just as Jesus came to earth that first time in a physical, literal kind of way, he will most certainly come again in a physical, literal kind of way. And so this is the first place that Peter wants to direct our thinking as he begins to talk about the second coming of Christ. But then moving on from the, the return of Christ foretold, verses 1 and 2, we come next to verses 3 and 4 where we see the return of Christ challenged. He says there in verse 3, knowing this first, and if you give your attention there, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. And do we see what, do we see what Peter's saying here? Do we see what he's saying here in verses 3 to 4? He is speaking of those who not, only have a, who, who not only blatantly reject the doctrine, the teaching of the second coming of Christ. He's not only referring to those who reject it, but he's also speaking of those who actively mock and ridicule those 
who do believe it. They rejected themselves, but it's not a passive rejection. It's an active rejection. They're mocking and ridiculing those who would hold to, to such a doctrine. Now, without a doubt, the early church held to the belief that Jesus could return and would return one day, and they held to the belief that he could return at any moment. There was an imminency to their understanding of the return of Christ. For instance, when the Apostle Paul, when he spoke about Christ's return, the Apostle Paul would often talk about it in such a way that demonstrated his belief that Jesus could possibly return at any moment, even within his lifetime. And there was somewhat of an expectancy that was there. He could return at any time, even in his lifetime. But then as time went on, as the years passed by, the expectancy that believers had for the return of Christ, well, it began to become, be sort of called into question. At first you heard it, yes, he's coming, but then as the years went by, that belief of a second coming was called into question by those who were looking in on it from the outside. In particular, the false teachers who had slipped into the church. They started disbelieving, denying, distorting what that might look like. Every year that went by, there'd be some on the outside who would question, can you really be as sure of the second coming of Christ as you once were. Now, in order for a person to reject the doctrine of Christ's second coming, in order for a person to reject it, they've got to, you know, they've got their work cut out for them. <laughs> they really do have their work cut out. And for them to have to, they'll have to disregard and deny a whole ocean of what the Bible teaches. For a person to deny it, they have to deny the 200 plus prophecies that Christ, of Christ, talking about Christ in the Old Testament, and they've also got to disregard and deny the 300 plus references in the New Testament which explicitly talk about the return of Christ. It's going to be, they've got their work cut out for them, for a person to deny it. Yet it still happens. It happened back then, it happens today. There are those today who reject and deny the fact that Jesus will come back a second time. Firstly, there are those who hold to what is called the preterist uh, view of end times. The preterist view of end times is that they believe that the tribulation that's talked about and Christ's second coming, that that happened in AD 70 with the destruction of Jerusalem. They see that was the tribulation and that there were some sightings of Christ's return. And so any expectancy of Christ returning a second time to earth there is none, according to the preterist worldview or the preterist view of end times. Then there are those who are liberal theologians, those who don't really interpret correctly, but they're always trying to make figurative certain texts of Scripture that are to be taken literal. Liberal theologians today would say that any biblical references to the second coming of Christ, they shouldn't be taken literally, they should be taken figuratively. That when a person becomes a believer... You know, Christ enters into their hearts and into their lives. And in that sense, Jesus is coming the second time. When I was saved, that was the second coming of Christ. That kind of thing. Then there are those today whose hearts have been somewhat, try to think of a word, calloused. They feel calloused when they, when they think about the second coming of Christ. And a lot of this has to do with the result or as the result of those dodgy date setters in the 1970s and 1980s. Those who propagated through the church, and especially in, in America, in the United States, who propagated through there, trying to pinpoint the exact time that Christ would return. And the thinking of many, and there are whole books written on this stuff. 
in the thinking of many, 1988 was the year. That was the year that Christ was coming back. That was the time to look forward to the rapture. That was the time that would all be happening. And somehow in their calculations, they had it just down right. And somewhere a bit more conservative, they said somewhere in the 1980s. Somewhere more specific, 1988. Well, what happened with that one? As that time came and went, those people who sat under that teaching perhaps for decades, they became disillusioned about the doctrine of Christ's return. And if anything, they're not particularly keen to hear any more about it. It's a denial by just saying, I'm done. I sat under that for long enough and I'm done. I don't want to hear another word about it. I was duped. I did what I did. I prepared in the way that I thought I should and then it came and went. It was a fizzle, fizzled out. It was a, it was a you know, there was, there was nothing to it. And so for a number of reasons, there are people today who would reject or close their ears to the doctrine of the second coming of Christ. However, the reason for why false teachers denied the doctrine of the second coming of Christ in Peter's day was for a slightly different reason. It wasn't date-setters. It wasn't those who holding a preterist view. It wasn't liberal theologians. But instead, Peter articulates the reason for why they denied the second coming of Christ, and it's where he says in verse 3, Now knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts. And there it is. That is the reason. That's the reason why they denied it. The reason that false teachers were rejecting the doctrine of Christ's return in Peter's day is because they loved their sin too much. They loved sexual, sinful, rebellious immorality. In other words, these people did not like the idea of Christ's return because if you, every time they talk about the return of Christ, it re- would remind them that one day they would be held account for their actions. So instead of changing their lives, instead of adjusting their lives to live a life that was more pleasing to Christ, what did they do? They chose to reject and undermine the very doctrine that would cause them so much unease. As Peter says in verse 3, they went as far as mocking it and scoffing at it. Not only did they just, you know, shut their own minds off to it, they were wanting to point the finger at those who did hold to the idea. But I think when you think about it, it makes sense though, doesn't it? It makes sense what we see here. After all, I think that you'd be hard-pressed. Think about it. I think you'd be hard-pressed to try to find a person who loves living in a sinful lifestyle, a lifestyle of sin, while at the same time willingly embraces the doctrine of the second coming of Christ. You know anyone like that? Someone who is just hard set on living a a sinful, willful, sinful lifestyle in regard, disregarding what scripture says of how they should be living their lives. Do you know anyone like that that is also wholeheartedly embracing the doctrine of the second coming of Christ? I doubt it. A, A person who is given over to lust, fornication, adultery, pornography, think about that. They are not thinking to themselves, they're not actively thinking to themselves, wow. Wouldn't it be great if Jesus returned today? Wouldn't it be great for him to see what it is that I'm looking on my computer right now? Wouldn't it, wouldn't it be wonderful just to, if only could Jesus could see me now in this adulterous, fornicating relationship, wouldn't this be a glorious time if he could just come right now and see me right what I'm doing? Not at all. A person who is given over to greed, like these false apostles were, false teachers were, greed and covetousness and, and dishonest gain, They're not thinking to themselves, if only Jesus could return today, 
this would be the day I'd just love to see him face to face. I'd love to see him doing this dodgy dealing. I'd love to see him, I'd love for him to see me kind of extorting, you know, exploiting his church, which he laid down his own life for. Oh man, that would be a wonderful day for him to, for him to come back and see me doing that, wouldn't it? I mean, think about it. Think about the false teachers that are around today, even in our own present day. Think about whatever one's come to mind. I'm not going to point them out today, but whatever, whatever one's come to mind for you right now. Think about the ones who preach a false gospel. Think about ones who would seek to, to preach a, a man-centered gospel, a prosperity gospel focused on, on health and wealth. I think you would be struggling to try to find even one sermon that, they, that would come out of their pulpit or out of their mouths where they're focusing on the second coming of Christ. Think about that. Try to Google it. Be interested. I'd be really interested to see if you could find anything. Those who preach a false gospel, those who preach an earthly perspective gospel, a man-centered gospel, a prosperity, health, wealth kind of gospel, try to find if there's a teaching that they would actually teach concerning the second coming of Christ. Because here's the bottom line. False teachers and false converts, they are not living for eternity. They're not living in the light of fact that Jesus could come and will come and could come at any time, but instead they are living for the here and the now. False teachers, false converts are not living with an eternal perspective, but they are living with an earthly perspective. You want to know, you want to divide the sheep from the goats? One easy way to do it is to say, what are you living for? What are you giving your life to? How are you using the time that, that, that God has given you right now before the coming of Christ? And I'm not saying that it has to be the, you know, it's not always going to be an exact way of doing that, but it, it gives you some kind of indication, especially according to what Peter is helping us to understand here. They walk according to their lusts, walking according to their own lusts. And so it was in Peter's day, those who walked according to their own lusts, what do they do? They scoffed, they mocked the idea of Jesus coming again. And in the same way today, there are going to be those who might scoff, who might mock, who might uh, um, disregard, maybe in the omission, not preaching that. And how could you preach that? How could you preach a sermon on the, 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 the coming of Christ, the glorious coming of Christ, where he'll judge the wicked? And by the way, now I'm going to fleece the flock of God. How could you do that? You can't. But notice the argument. <clears throat> There's an argument that these false teachers were actually trying to put forward as to why it is that they were denying Again, we know what is the main reason for why they're denying the second coming of Christ. They were walking according to their own lusts. That's what was driving them. But they, they can't just say that, you know. They can't just say, I'm not going to talk about the second coming of Christ. I'm going to deny the second coming of Christ because I just love my sin too much. Well, out you go then, buddy. It doesn't sound right to me. No, no, it's more subtle than that. And listen to the argument in verse 4. Verse 4, he says, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers slept, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Now, what are we seeing here? What is the, what is the basis of their argument? The basis of their argument is a, a uni, uniformitarian worldview. Try to say that fast three times. Uniformitarian. A uniformitarian worldview is one that believes that the universe is simply a naturalistic system, a system of just cause and effect. A uniformitarianism view, well, that, that rejects any possibility of any kind of divine intervention from a being outside of humans and the system in which we now live in. Instead, it's a belief that only natural processes that have operated in the past are the same natural processes that are going to be at work today. 
In fact, this is one of the most important pillars, primary pillars, that Charles Darwin is built upon in, in, in terms of establishing his theory of evolution, uniformitarian view. Things just continue as they always were without the divine intervention from a being on the outside. When it all boils down to it, the uniform, uniformitarianism is essentially a, a universe without God. It's a universe without God, or at least a universe where God does not intervene, a universe where God does not interfere with his creation. This is what the argument is of the false teachers that Peter quotes here in verse 4. Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers are asleep, all things continue as they were at the beginning of creation. And so how does Peter respond to this objection? How does Peter deal with this? How does he deal with the mocking, scoffing, those who mock and scoff at the idea that Christ will return a second time at some point in the future? Well, moving on from the return of Christ challenged, verses 3 and 4, we come finally now to the return of Christ expected, verses 5 to 9. Notice there in your Bibles, if you give your attention there in verse 5, this is what he says. He says, For they, this they willingly forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, the earth standing out of the water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water, but the heavens and the earth which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Now, do we see what Peter's doing here? Do you see what he's communicating to us here? In order to try to counteract the false idea of uniformitarianism, what Peter desires to do is to give us a little bit of a history lesson. It's time to get out the old history books here. It's time to look to see what has actually taken place in history. In order to disprove the uniformitarian ideas, well, the things that, that, that things have just continued the way that they always have without any form of divine intervention from the outside, what does Peter point to? In verses 5 to 7, he points to two significant events where this was not the case. The uniformitarian kind of view was just not the case. Notice in verse 5, the very first event that Peter points to is the creation of the universe. Where did it come from? This is what he means in verse 5, where he says, and that by the, the word of God, the heavens of old, the earth standing out of the water, and in the water. He's talking about the creation account. When God brought the universe into existence, he did not need any pre-existing materials. When God brought the universe into existence, he didn't need long periods of time where natural processes just continued over and over again. But instead, the universe was brought into existence instantaneously when what? When God spoke it into existence. That is what is meant in verse 5 where he says, by the word of God. His word did it. Not time, not just natural processes, by his word. And then moving on to verse 6, notice that Peter points to a second historical event. And again, what is he trying to do? He's trying to refute the idea that history or things only follow a naturalistic path without any divine intervention. The second historical event that he points to is the worldwide flood in Noah's day. Or, as he puts it in verse 6, by which the world <clears throat> that then existed perished, being flooded with water. Look at creation, look at the flood. Now here's the thing, before, before the worldwide flood took place, there had been, never been anything like it 
and the past. There was no precedent. There's not something you could point to and go, hey, this, is, this has happened in the past. You know, every, whatever, 100,000, 10,000 years, there is a big worldwide flood. There was nothing they could point to to say that anything like it had happened in the past. No precedent whatsoever that the entire world would be covered with water. Yet what did God do? God stepped into human history. He directly intervened in order to bring this event about. Now, perhaps we may be asking ourselves a question, how? How is it that these false teachers, how is it that they could not know this? How is it that these false teachers could forget these two essential, significant, historical events? After all, we know from from the description of false teachers, these are not ones that didn't know the Bible. The false teachers, they they slipped in secretly. They slipped in unnoticed. They got into pulpits, and everyone at first believed they are the real deal. Well, why is that? It's because they knew the Bible. It's because they knew the Old Testament. They were familiar with these kinds of things. The the false teachers were not unfamiliar with what the 